is where business ideas and passions turn into profit. Napkin ideas are no longer tucked away in drawers, and women around the globe are turning their hobbies into million-dollar businesses. Welcome to Million Dollar Hobbies. Here's your host, world-renowned jewelry designer and Shop HQ celebrity, Victoria Wick. Welcome to another episode of the Million Dollar Hobbies podcast. Wow, I have an amazing guest today. And seriously, I would say Steve Sims has done almost everything that I've ever wanted to do in my life. As you, many of you know, I have you know, traveled a lot and I actually have been very blessed to have done a lot of the things that are in my dreams. But Steve actually has done all the things that I couldn't do so far. So, and I, was, I couldn't you know, wait to get him on the show. But more than that, more than anything, he has an amazing, amazing transformation story. So I joked with him just before we went live that he probably has something really in common with one of my favorite singers, Tom Jones. And I don't want to really date myself, but he started out as a bricklayer and from London, bricklayer from London, just like Tom Jones was. And he ended up working with, you know, people that are much better known than Tom Jones, obviously. Elton John, Elon Musk, you might have heard of a couple of those people. Anyways, I don't want to go through a whole bio because it's very long and it's super interesting. I'd rather have him tell the story than myself. But the other thing I love about Steve is he's an amazing marketer. He's, you know, really a humble person and a fun person. And with the amount of travel he's done and, and the type of you know, things that he's been involved in, he has to have such a grounded information of just everything. It's just amazing. So anyway, without further ado, I want to welcome Steve. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So as I told you, you've done everything I wanted to have. Number one, Andre Bocelli is one of my absolute favorite singers of all time. And talk about transformation story. I mean, his story is heart-wrenching and it's uplifting and it's something that we can all relate to. So as you said earlier, and I don't want to sound harsh, but Steve said it, I'm, going to, I'm sure he's going to say it again, that if you think right now you, you're sitting on a million dollar hobby, because, you know, as you know, I think that every hobby is worth at least a million dollars. And you're thinking, I can't do it because I don't have money. I can't do it because I don't have time. I can't do it because, you know, I'm not good enough or I don't have some unique uh, selling proposition or whatever, some chic marketing thing. I have to tell you, you are out of excuses this morning. So, Steve, let me ask you, let's, let me take you to the beginning. Like, how did you start? Just give me a little, like a, a three-minute bio about the beginning. And then how did you end up doing what you're doing now? It's pretty much the same as everyone else. I spent the early part of my life being aggravated and I came out of school, didn't have a lot of money, worked as a bricklayer, didn't have a lot of money. And I thought to myself, how can people have money and I can't? You know, I'm working from five o'clock in the morning. I'm going home at eight o'clock at night, all busted up and wet from the, uh, the typical London weather. How come I haven't got money? And it just aggravated me. And I realized that I was in the wrong environment. I was in the wrong room. So I started literally going to, you know, upscale wine bars and uh, lobbies of hotels to just see what rich people did. You know, there must be something that they're doing that I'm not. So I just went out to try and find it. And along the way, became a great advocate and consumer of like human psychology and body language. And I just noticed how successful people 
interact with successful people and how fake people interact pretending as though they're successful. And I just noticed all of these things. And along the way, I started conversations with rich people to try and find out how. Strangely, while I went into different jobs to try and surround myself with them from stockbroker, insurance, yachts, charter sales, I got fired from all of those. The best job I ever got was a bricklayer, as was a, a doorman of a nightclub. And it just gave me a great view of what people needed. So I was actually in Hong Kong at the time and I started realizing what people wanted, started throwing parties, getting into parties. And it just went from there. And before I knew it, I used my access as a Trojan horse to try and get to have conversations with rich people and go, hey, how come you're successful and I'm not? But the Trojan horse went a bit further. Because of all the requests I was getting, I started working with Sir Elton John, Richard Branson, closing down museums in Florence, sending people down to the wreck of the Titanic on the seabed. I just became the man that can for very, very affluent people with dreams. Wow. So while that was so interesting, what I got was some real life lessons. I'm just going to unpack what he just said, because that's just amazing to me. Number one, you know, Steve started out his life very similar to a lot of people. Uh, A lot of people come to America, you know, penniless, like I came to America penniless in search of a dream. And then you wonder, you, you know, you are aggravated, you're frustrated because you feel like you're working so hard. You feel like you're doing everything you can to better yourself and nothing happens. And at that point, you have two choices. You can either continue to bitch about your life and, you know, just think about how unfair life is and all these horrible things. The other thing you could do is figure out what are they doing? What are they doing right that I'm not doing right? And so, and that's the path you took. So you basically decided, okay, I'm frustrated, I'm aggravated, I'm doing every single thing I can. And those people that are successful that have money, they must be doing something right. So you had that curiosity. And then you went ahead and you, you know, and the other thing I love about what you just said too is a lot of times it's not what people say. It's what's unsaid, the body language, how they communicate. So you, you've observed all of this stuff, and then you figured out, basically, you want to move yourself to a better environment where you have the opportunity then to become like one of those rich people. So that doorman job, you know, it actually, I mean, a lot of people would say, geez, I've been working all my life and, you know, all I could get is a doorman job. <laughs> but, you know, you embrace that. And you really made the best out of that. So, you know, in many cases, I, you know, that's just really amazing that you've, you know, pretty much. So now that was your beginning, you know, it's like a little thing. When I look at your bio, and by the way, what Steve is talking about is that he's worked with people like Elton John, Elon Musk, you know, um, all these people when they have, when they, when you think about the, the most impossible thing. You know, like having a museum in Florence open, you know, just privately for you. And by the way, there are a lot of uh, these museums that are private. I myself actually toured the Forbidden City. You know, I had a a client that actually in China that was pretty influential with the Chinese uh, Communist Party. And I was able to actually tour it privately. And I had no idea that there was a whole private section of the you know museum. And I'm sure in many cities like in Florence, they have these and they rarely open them for anybody. So here, uh, Steve is out there. And if you, you know, what do you do if you're Elton John or Elon Musk? You're not going to go pick up the phone and, you know, order pasta. 
you're going you're gonna to call somebody. So Steve is that person, you know, he's done the, the impossible. He's, I mean, amazing things like, I mean, I just dream of thing, doing something like this. I mean, he had Elton John, Elon Musk, all these people at, in a Florence private dinner party and, you know, have someone like Andre Bocelli sing just for that private party. And you're, you're witnessing all this stuff. That's just awesome. So how do you then go from, so it's one thing to have access, but the next thing then is how do you make all this stuff happen? You just call up somebody and say, hey, I want that museum opened for party of seven people or whatever. So, no. so to be accurate, uh, Elon and Elton weren't at that particular party. Uh, okay. This was for a different client. And the client wanted to have a, a dining experience in Florence. And that's why I did that event. And I took over the museum. I set up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David. And I had Andrea Bocelli come in and serenade them while they were eating their pasta. I do reach out to people without the fear of reaching out. A lot of people will want to do something, but before they even try, they'll sit there going, oh, but I couldn't do that. Oh, I, I don't know. No, 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 I won't make the fight. And they get scared. They fear themselves out. And fear is terrible. Once it gets hold of you, there's nothing you can do about it. But with me, I'm too stupid for that. So I want something and I go and, I go and ask. And it's amazing. The more times I ask for something, the more times I get it. What I also do, which, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, which one of the things I also do, which I think is one of my benefits, is that I constantly have people that are revered more actually do the asking for me or do the introduction. Right. See, yeah. If I wanted to get hold of someone very powerful, if I went to try and talk to them, they'd be like, well, who are you? Why should I talk to you? So, what I'll do is I'll go and find someone who's equally powerful that I know and get them to introduce me. So that way I come in under credibility. So I'm constantly trying to find out before I contact you, who do you know that you respect that I know that I can get to introduce me? So I try never to make the introduction and the first approach myself. I always try to get one of my connections to do it for me. So Steve, what you're saying now is that you have, I mean, right now the buzzword is collaboration, networking. So you were networking way back before it was fashionable. Yeah, before I, <laughs> before I knew, because I'm terrible at networking. I've got to tell you that. You stick me in a room and you go, hey, enjoy this networking event. I'm going to find the bar and just sit there. Um, I don't like networking. People use networking events like it's a, a game to collect as many business cards as you can and form no conversations or relationships. For me, I need to form a relationship. So I'm yeah. from the original version and standpoint of what networking actually was about. Yeah. I, I, you know what, Steve, I think to be fair, a lot of these networking events that are put together just so that people can just meet and pick up, you know, pick up business cards, like you said, those events, I don't consider them to be networking. Because, no, no. you know, I don't consider them to be networking. It's basically like a sales, you know, a room where all you're pretty much pitching everybody. I mean, you would never go up to somebody and say, hey, you know, I'm Steve, you know, will you buy something from me? No. I mean, it's basically what they're what they're what they're doing in these networking events. So actually, the other thing I love about what you said, too, is it's really funny that you talk about how you bring back the communication skills, all of these, you know, mannerisms and everything from the 80s on to, to today's world. I would agree with you because, you know, I remember the 80s where people actually had manners. I'm not saying people today don't have manners, but 
we are living in a very fast paced environment now. But I mean, back in the 80s, when you didn't have Internet, when you didn't have cell phones and you actually had to you know, get up and go meet somebody in person and you got to know that person a little bit, got to know a little bit about you know, their family or whoever. And you build a little relationship before you ask for an introduction or anything. So I think what you're saying is that you know, relationships are very important and also that authenticity of you know, asking for something in a way that actually makes real sense. And not taking advantage of that relationship or, you know, abusing it. I think those are all kind of like really valuable. And when I look at your bio and look at all the things you've done and you break it down to those very basics, it is really uplifting, don't you think? I never went out to be uplifted. I never went out to motivate. No, but you're uplifting. What you've done is uplifting because what you're saying is that you know, that's what you that, that's what you did. And I think it's uplifting because we just all need to get back to the basics, really. And that that's true. We need you know, we joke. I, I always joke that we need to bring the 80s back. Not all the music, but some of it. But uh, <laughs> I believe that the 80s and the 90s, we spoke more. If you wanted to talk to someone, you knocked on their door or you phoned them up. Yeah, uh, those were the options. Now you want to talk to someone. You DM them, you text them, you, you know, send them a private message. There's a million ways for you to reach out to someone, which means there's a million ways for you to be overlooked. I believe you've got to go back to the basics. Phone people, send them a letter. Oh, my God, I, I do so well out of sending posts. Send them a letter, knock on that door, phone them up and go, hey, I'd like to have a chat with you. Let's go and have a coffee. You know, you've really got to do that. And the good thing is, Back in the 80s, this wasn't unusual. Right. Creative. But now, just imagine if you got a phone call saying, hey, I'm in town and I wanted to talk to you about a project. Can I buy you dinner or can I buy you lunch or can I pop in? I'll bring the coffee and croissant. You'll be like, oh, that's different. That's refreshing. (laughs) But people don't do it now. Or they think you're nuts. You know, how how dare you? Like, you know, or this guy must be like ancient. Well, look at the phone. If someone phones you now, like you just had your phone ring, okay? Right. How aggravating did you feel that the phone rang? Okay? Naturally, today, when the phone rings, now I've had, from the first time I bought my first iPhone, I've had it on vibrate, okay? Right. The first phone I ever, I just turned the, the sound off. When someone's in an environment, no matter what the environment is, when the phone rings, if you're not with the person, Right. You kind of look at the person as though they're intruding. You know, oh, my right. God, he's, right. got his, yeah. he's got yeah. his ring on. And everyone looks hatred at them. If it's your phone and it rings, even before you've answered it, you're aggravated because you've been interrupted. Okay? Even if it's your mum, yeah. you're yeah. in a bad mood before you answer the phone call because we don't like that interruption, that noise, that alarm. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even when you phone someone with good intentions, you've got to get over that. And the bad thing, let's be completely blunt, we've just gone through a year where people have not been able to communicate with each other. Now, the truth is, we were getting really bad in any case. Oh, yes, Uh, I agree. So we were getting bad of it, and then all of a sudden it stopped. I know a lot of people now, and you've seen on the news, they don't want to go back to the office. Right. They don't want to be around people. It's actually gone the other way. Not only were we bad at communicating, we're going to be bad at socializing. I'm going out for dinner this Friday night. 
it's the first time I've actually gone out with dinner with a whole bunch of people. It's a Wednesday, and I'm actually starting to get a bit. Oh, what am I going to wear? What am I? Yeah, oh my God! Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to. I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's weird, right? But that's what happens now. You know, we actually get concerned and cautious. I heard on a British radio station a little while ago. There's the, they're, they're coining something a social hangover. You haven't oh. been with people for so long, yeah, yeah. But now you are. You're yeah. all excited and tense. And afterwards, you're all tired. You've got a social hangover from actually interacting with people. It's like all muscles. Any muscle you don't use becomes weak and sometimes just goes away. That's true. Social skills is a muscle that we need to focus on. We need to get pushing. We need to help with. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. I think that the world was already going toward antisocial behavior, especially with the younger kids. Because, you know, in Los Angeles, I know that you know this, that, you know, there are a lot of people that won't talk to their, uh, especially like in the city, they won't talk, they don't even know who their neighbors are because they go to work first thing in the morning, they come home at night, but they'll talk to somebody in Russia or Korea or, you know, Latin America on their email or on their chats. And I think, you know, that is kind of unfortunate because when you, wouldn't you say, Steve, that a lot of the things that you've done, you know, such as, you know, having these doors open for you, having these incredible events, you know, where you were actually, you made the event possible or, you know, calling up Andrea Bocelli or whoever. Do you think you could have done all of that just by Zooming people? No, absolutely not. <laughs> not a hope in hell. Then it would have been, it would have been a, a no starter. I remember being stood uh, next to Elton John at a party and someone came up to him and said, um, hey, how much will it cost me to have you at my barbecue party? And he turned around, he said, I'm busy. And he moved off. He walked away. People don't know how to communicate properly. And I think Zoom has lost the energy that you find when you're actually person to person. You right. know, it's, it's, it's been a good substitute. It's been a good alternative, and it's not going away. No. Um, but it's also not a replacement. It's no, like, I agree. Yeah. It's like saying, hey, a horse can get you to work just like a car can. Right. It's a good alternative and you haven't got to fuel it, but it ain't going to replace the car. No, so you've got exactly. to understand what the priority is and there will be nothing that will ever be a face-to-face, in-person conversation. Nothing will, but the trouble is we're getting really bad at doing it. We are. Let me ask you, so now it says that were you really a James Bond uh, for the weekend? Or yeah, I had a cl- I had a client of mine contact me and they wanted to do something for her husband. So we interviewed the wife to find out what the husband liked, and he was a big James Bond fan. So we actually got a Hollywood scriptwriter to write this whole script and this storyline, uh, and we actually made him 008 for the weekend, where he was coming back from uh, retirement. He was going back into active service. He had to kind of uh, go through these things. So we set this entire weekend up for him where he was 008 going back in. And if you remember, you know, if any of you out there are James Bond fans, he always has a martini. Uh, and every- Stirred but not shaken or something yeah. like that. Yeah. He's okay. the worst spy in the world. Because you think about it, everyone knows his name and everyone knows what he has to drink. Okay, so he's the worst spy in the planet. 
But we found out this client, this client had a, I forget what, I don't know if it was a whiskey sour, but he had a whiskey cocktail that was his favorite drink. Uh, Yeah. So what we would do was every time he walked into a restaurant or a bar, the barman would be, ah, good afternoon, mister, and his name, here is your drink, and would just automatically make his drink just like they do for James Bond. So now that was in Monte Carlo? Yeah, we started off in Monte Carlo, went over to Saint-Tropez, and then finished off in Russia. Oh, yeah. So that's his, like his cover. His cover got blown in saint This was all the script. His cover got okay. blown got in okay. Saint-Tropez. Yeah. So he had to take a midnight flight into Russia. So okay. it, was all, it was all part of the script. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know, I love uh, all, the, all the things you've done now. Since then, you have founded, you've written a book called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. And I love that because yep. I think that in, yeah, I love that. I love the, the cover too. It's so simple and it stands out. I'm a designer, so I have to kind of, you know, <laughs> chime in on that stuff. So what was your favorite city of all the cities that you've been to? Oh, dear. See, the funny thing, what a lot of people don't know about me is that I'm boring and I'm curious which is a funny kind of double trait to have. Yeah. You know, I, I love riding a motorcycle on my own through the hills and not talking to anyone. But at the same time, I'm very curious about what does the underground look like of this building in Prague. Um, so I'm always curious to get into places that yeah. I shouldn't get into. But right. I constantly love going to different cities. A repeat city that I like going back to is always Florence. Love that too. How you could know? you not? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But I love going anywhere different. We were chatting. I was chatting with my wife this morning and she was talking about heading over to Iceland and we haven't been to Iceland. So we're not the kind of people that want to sit on a beach. We're the kind of people that want to walk through the snowy streets of uh, Amsterdam or, you know, walk through the manic West End of London or, you know, that kind of thing. So we love traveling, love traveling, but there's nothing better than coming home. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, actually, you know, you're a lot like me because I'm pretty boring. I live like a really, really boring life here when I'm home. I like my life really simple. I almost go to the same place, you know, for lunch every day. Um, same thing, like same six places I go to, you know, because that's trusted. But I do have that incredible curiosity about how other people live, uh, you know, the history of other places. I mean, what, one of my favorite places in Hong Kong, because it's like, Oh, and the other one I, I think that's really interesting is Venice because there's no other place like that where you got to take a boat, uh, you know. Stuff. So and, and the histories for both places is just amazing. So I was just curious because when you go to as many places and, and like, like just like in Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo is another one of those places that has a very unique history as well. So uh-huh. I was just wondering if you can actually pick one. But, you know, and who could anyone yeah. that travels? I remember I remember sitting in a bar in Rome. And I was at the Hotel de Russie in Rome. And this guy just wanted to have a conversation. I was on my own. And he just started talking to me at the bar. And uh, he said something about travel. And I said to him, oh, you know, and I was, I just wanted to drink alone. But I said to him, oh, you know, where have you been that you liked? And he literally turned around to me, dead serious. And he said, I've been everywhere. And I went, oh, everywhere. And he went, I've been everywhere. There's nowhere I haven't been. And I thought to really? myself, I yeah. thought to myself, how sad is that? You know, yeah. can you imagine if you had been? See, also, you mentioned Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong from ninety four to ninety seven, and so I that's been, right when the when the 
the changeover happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I've been back a few times. Every two to three years, they change. it changes. Yeah. yeah. So totally. It doesn't mean if you, and I went to Bangkok and I lived in Bangkok for, I think, two and a half, three years as well. And I went back to Bangkok a couple of years ago, couldn't recognize the place. Right. So everything changes. So the idea that you've been everywhere, I think it's probably the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. Or I meet a lot of people here that don't want to go see anything. <laughs> That's the other thing. Oh, I got, a, I got American citizenship a couple of months ago, I told you. Yeah. And the first thing I did was applied for the American passport, which I got about two weeks ago. And at the passport office, there were a few people in the lineup that had got the immigration papers and the, sorry, the citizenship papers to get the passport. And I was talking to the lady in the passport office. And I said, this is fantastic. I said, you must get tons of people because the, the, um, the law office, uh, not the law office, the government building was just across the road. I said, you must get a lot of people, get that certificate and just come running over here to get that passport. And she said, no. She said, we don't get a lot of passports. She said, the funny thing is, we get more people applying for passports that have just gained citizenship. Right than actual Americans that right. were born here because they just don't think they need to travel. They, if they want the beach, they'll go to Miami. If they want the mountains, they'll go to Utah. Yeah. If they want something tropical, they'll go to Hawaii. Why do they need to leave America? And that, to me, is just, just mind-numbing. Yeah, I think, you know, part of it is that America is such a diverse country. You know, if you go from Alaska to Hawaii to, you know, you know, the East and the West Coast and the mountains, you do have almost like a little continent, you know, within the country. But as far as I'm concerned, like I when I lived in South Korea and I'm sure London to a degree, you know, you're a much smaller country. I mean, not London, but in, uh, Britain is a much smaller country. And in Europe, everybody has to travel all the time just to mm. get around. In yeah. South Korea, I mean, I pretty much read uh, a lot of books because that's how I saw the world. So when I was able to actually travel, you know, to the Middle East, to the, you know, the Eastern Europe, Western Europe, it was just kind of really amazing that you're soaking in things that are foreign to you all the time. So you feel like you're never getting old, really, you know? Oh, yeah. So, so question. So on your... So in your Blue Fishing, do you teach in that book? I haven't read it and I'm going to because like you're, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, one of the most fascinating people with incredible background. And I just think that your own transformation story as well as what, you know, I don't want many people to get the idea that you were at the right place at the right time and everything just kind of happened because what happened to you? Like, it's really hard because you really have to kind of earn that respect with every client, every event and continue to evolve. And I think more than anything, you also have to have that curiosity and open-mindedness because only when you have that, you're able to pick up the phone and unafraid to pick up the phone and go, you know, let me see what happens when I pick up the phone and call person X. You know what I mean? You're not like, oh, I can't call that person because, you know, the phone might blow up. <laughs> you know, I don't know why, why you wouldn't call them up. But so do you, in the book, do you teach the art of communication or what's in there? That's a good and, and funny little story. I first got approached because more and more people were starting to know who I am and the kind of things I was doing. Forbes called me the real life Wizard of Oz. I've been in everything from the South China Morning Post to everything. Sunday London Times, yeah. Everything. I've been all over the place. Um, 
and I've been on all the TV shows, all the breakfast shows, and I got approached to write this book naming all of the rich and powerful people that I had dealt with and what I had done for them. And I said to him, I can't do that. If I, if I told you these stories, yeah. I'd be dead before cocktail hour. Right. Um, yeah. And so then they came back to me two weeks later, and it was kind of funny because I thought that was the end of it. And they said, hang on a minute, we've been looking into you. How does a bricklayer end up working with the Vatican? You know, how does, how does a, a, a biker, which is, you know, what I am, end up working with Sir Elton John? You know, can you write the book on that? So I thought to myself, well, hang on a minute. If I can do it, anybody can do it. Right. And so I started writing the book. And writing a book is always like um, self-psychology. Okay. You start, you start questioning yourself. It's quite, it can be quite disturbing. I remember a few nights thinking to myself, my God, did I really do that? And I never thought about that. It was quite revealing to right. write a book. It's, it's like basically standing in front of a, of a mirror with all the lights on and just taking all your clothes off and going, all right, let's have a look. It's just strange when you start analyzing what you've done over your life. So the book is how to communicate the importance of relationships, how to create impact, how to focus on the solution and not the sale. And in it, it's got stories of me and Elton, me and, uh, you know, Bocelli and all these different little things that I've got up to, to show that this isn't a book about, oh, you know, I can do this. It's yeah, about I yeah. did this because I followed these steps that you can do as well. So I didn't expect the book to be anything special. In fact, I didn't expect the book to even sell. And this is truth. I got paid almost an illegal amount to, to write this book. So I didn't care if it sold a copy because I'd already been paid. And when the book came out, I didn't even do a website. And I was told that I had to. So stevedsims.com actually has a video of my book launch where, quite simply, I just took over a whiskey bar in, in Hollywood and just got drunk with a bunch of my friends. And they, <laughs> they filmed a video on it, and I didn't know they were filming it. So it starts off, everyone's really sober and polite. Mm -hmm. And then as the video gets on, it gets a little bit coarse and crass. But... I didn't expect the book to do well until people started reading it and going, hang on a minute. I, I ignore these things or I'm scared to try these things. You tried them and now you're working with the Vatican, you know? So people have started really grasping. And that's why now I'm talking on stages. I'm training. I'm coaching. I talk literally all over the planet. I have my own inner, uh, inner circle, Sims Distillery. So it's just gone crazy. And the book funny thing about the book, the book's been translated and been a number one bestseller in Korea, Vietnam, China, Thailand, or Poland. It got released in Poland and about a month ago, or two months ago, it got released in Russia. And so it's just hilarious how it's just taken over the planet. Well, I think that, first of all, when a publisher decides to back a book, you know, with like a, an advance, they usually know what they're doing. I mean, they usually force to back. And, you know, it's not like a real accident that they're, they're, I'm working with a couple of publishers right now, but they really know what they're doing. They kind of do up the game. They know which stories will sell. You know, they got whole marketing departments, you know, people who do book covers, all that stuff. So it's not too 
you know, if you self-publish it, that's a whole different thing. But I think uh, they know what they're doing. And I'm not surprised that the book sold. And specifically in those countries where people are not, you know, I've traveled to all those countries you mentioned. And I think people are naturally so curious. And believe it or not, the American, the idea of the American dream, where you could be anybody and kind of, you know, try to dream of becoming someone and you have a reasonable chance of actually achieving that dream if you're willing to work for it. That idea of the concept of American dream is so alive in all those countries, much more so than countries where it's actually possible, you know? So I'm just, you know, happy for you that you've done that. But I also, going back to what Steve said about what's in the book, you know, what he's saying is that, you know, the, the names like Elton John and all these people, they're really secondary to the core message, which is all the steps that he took to transform himself from uh, a bricklayer to really somebody who's recognizable, trusted, respected for some of their most, you know, memorable and meaningful events in their lives. That means you have to gain their trust. He has to be likable. He has to be somebody seen as somebody or, you know, uh, known as somebody who is a can-do guy who can uh, keep things kind of under the wrap. So it's a really incredible uh, transformation story. It's an American dream story because I don't know about you, but if you're stuck in a corporate job right now or you're dreading going back to work and you know the life you deserve and you know what actually makes you happy, but you're not happy, you know, but you're still stuck at this job because you think you have no other option. You think that the only thing you can do is pay your bills for now and that now is forever. Take a, a page out of state. And, uh, you know, because I just think that and that's what this whole show is all about. You know, people like Steve are going out there, kind of achieving his dream, because, you know, if he said uh, to himself, like, I was a born a bricklayer and all I'm going to be is a bricklayer and I this is my world. Yeah. And I'm not going to ever see anything and I'm just going to be I'm aggravated. But, you know, there's nothing I can do. Uh, you know, most likely things aren't going to change. Uh, but, you know, being curious and you know, being open-minded, willing to learn. Because, you know, that's the other thing we talk about in, in the show. Um, a lot of times, you know, I have people that, you know, I work with that, you know, like we actually have to travel, like, you know, buying trips to Hong Kong, for example. To me, um, you know, I'm not from Hong Kong, but to me, when I go there, it's such a, I mean, if you go there, you'll find out that, first of all, the city is kind of built like London, you know, they drive on the left side of the road, you know, they got great rail systems. They speak great English because English was their first language, you know, until 1997. So, you know, it's a, it's a cultural crossroads and I happen to actually really love it, but I know a lot of Americans who actually fear going to places like that because they think that, you know, it's unsophisticated and it's like, you know, unhealthy or, you know, they might get sick or something and, you know, they, they don't want to travel. And that's just really sad, like you said, because I think that, you know, and I've traveled to a lot of, you know, countries, and, you know, I think I actually got the only two countries I actually really got sick in, and this had nothing to do with the country, you know, which probably had to do with the, my fatigue, was uh, coming back from Cannes one year, like I had done Cannes, Nice, Monte Carlo, that whole bunch, drove all the way up to Paris, and then on my way back home, I got sick, probably probably from exha exhaustion, but I never got actually sick from food poisoning or anything like that from any of these countries that I've been to. So, you know, it's really sad that sometimes you have these little things that will block your mind and it, you know, uh, kind of 
blocks you from moving forward in life. But just like, you know, Steve, from a bricklayer to giving speeches, it says on your bio that you have spoken at Harvard University. Mm-hmm. As well as the Pentagon, those are two pretty big names. Yeah, actually. yeah. I've spoken. I've lost track of how many stages I've spoken on, which is probably a, a strange thing to say. But three of my most memorable was I spoke at the graduation party in Kern Level Four Maximum Security Prison, and I've spoken at Harvard twice and the Pentagon. So I've managed to speak at some pretty abstract and amazing places. I don't know which one's my favorite, Harvard or Kern Prison. They're very similar, aren't they? Well, <laughs> <Are you> kidding. <laughs> the, the, the funny thing is, I sometimes say that uh, the difference between Kern and some of the other events is the tailoring's better. That's but, true. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I would say Kern, because in Kern, everyone had done some stupid, ridiculous, bad stuff. But they wanted <laughs> to... True. Yeah, they wanted to be better. They wanted to refine. They weren't trying to... themselves, yeah. Yeah, absolutely not. But they were like, hey, this doesn't have to be me. I did this, and I'm aware of it. And I'll always pay for it, but I need to be better. And so if you imagine, and I'm not... This is a very rude statement, but if you're in Harvard, the probability is that some of those people got helped to be in Harvard financially, connectivity, those kind of things, okay? They had a leg up the ladder. They started going to private schools. Now, there's a lot of people that have got scholarships, and there's a lot of people that have gotten there through hard graft, but there's also a lot of feeder systems that people have used to get them into the right school. You start at the right basic school, and then the right intermediate, and then the right college, and you've worked your way up. When you're in Kern, and you are in a six-foot-by-eight-foot cell, yeah, like 20 hours a day, then for you to be that focused, that upbeat, that determined, that driven, even though your rest of the day is full of fear and scare, that was quite something. It was quite intimidating. A big shout out to Defy Ventures for helping me be there. I think it's a fantastic thing, and I'm very proud to have done it. So let's go back here. So at Harvard, what was your speech about? And what, what was your speech about at Kern? Were they the same speech or different speeches? <laughs> I'm just wondering, they, you know. Yeah, how could they be? So I did, uh, I did Harvard, as I say, twice. And uh, it was all around the psychology of an affluent client and the world of luxury. I that remember, <laughs> yeah, it was those two things. And around Kern, it was about refinement and focus and energy. And so, yeah, they were they were very different topics to a very different crowd. Yeah. Well, it is an absolutely beautiful campus, you know, with the river running through it and all these people rowing boats and stuff. My what, husband Kern, went to Harvard. No, Harvard was. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was trying to think of where the river was in Kern. <laughs> yeah, no, there isn't one. But um, I, I haven't been to Kern, but I uh, my husband went to Harvard and he wasn't one of the feeder kids. Uh, he was one, one that had to actually work pretty hard. But um, I do hear you about you know, he actually went to school with many that you're talking about, the ones yes. that, have, that were privileged and, you know, they came into their class- classrooms with their jets and stuff. So anyway, listen, I really enjoyed this interview. And um, yeah. And if you're listening to this just on audio, go ahead and check out my YouTube channel because we have a lot of stuff that, that we're loading up, you know, just real life lessons. But I have to say a lot of times when we are learning 
real life lessons. You know, I've had some amazing guests here. They're not always fun. You know, they're not always fun. But Steve actually somehow managed to entertain us a lot. <laughs> uh, and I love his British accent. All Americans like really love that. We're very fascinated. We speak the same language, but you guys have a, a real handle <laughs> on the, you know, on the, the mastery of the language, the same language that we speak. So I love, you know, everything that you shared today. And, you know, and, and I also like it that you delivered it in a way that's not so uh, classroom lecture like, you know, it's, it's very real life lessons. And I, and I love that because a lot of times, coaches and people with, uh, you know, that want to be on this show, they've never actually lived the life. They've never actually done the things that, you know, that they preach. And um, so, but thank you so much. And, you know, all of you who are listening, I hope uh, this was really helpful and entertaining. And if you want to connect them, if you want somebody to be a James Bond over the weekend, or you want it to be a Martha Stewart or whoever you want them to be, <laughs> or maybe even become an, you know, maybe even become a Pope, who knows? He could make it happen. If he can dream it, he can make it happen. And you can check out Steve at Steve. Steve Sim- yeah, stevedsims.com. You've got to put the D in there, the dash in, but it's stevedsims.com. You can find out about anything there. You can find out about my training, my events, my coach, anything. Just go to stevedsims.com or just even follow me on Steve D. Sims on Instagram or an entrepreneur's advantage with Steve Sims, which is my Facebook page. So it's Steve D like dog. So stevedsims.com. Correct. And if you haven't subscribed to this channel already or this podcast already, please do so. And I would love just an honest review. You don't even have to actually make it a good review. Just tell us what you like about it so we can continue improving. And until next time, thank you so much, Steve. And until next time, please stay healthy and stay well. And remember what I always sign off with, which is happiness is a choice. And I hope you make great choices. And until next time, bye-bye. You've been listening to Million Dollar Hobbies, where we turn dreams into reality and passion into profit. According to ancient Chinese proverb, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Congratulations on taking that first step today. For more information on how Victoria can help you turn your hobby into a million dollars and to download Victoria's free ebook on passion-based business ideas, visit milliondollarhobbies.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player.